Unafraid podcast hosted on the OKC First podcast network. I am sitting here with uh, Pastor John. This is not my normal intro because I didn't write it out. So this is what's coming out. I normally introduce myself. I'm Zach Lucero, youth and creative pastor. We're already off script. We're getting wild here. (laughs) Sitting on the couch is the senior pastor, the man, the dad, John Middendorf. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Unafraid podcast. I think just during the season of COVID-19, we may rename the podcast to just mildly afraid. (laughs) As opposed to completely unafraid. Just don't want anybody to be stupid out there. Yeah, we're just kind of shuddering a little bit. Nothing too bad. No, no, no. Benign. Still not panicking podcast. Not. (laughs) That's better. I like that. Unafraid. Colon. Still not panicking. All right. (laughs) And uh, on the couch with John in studio today. It's really generous to call this a studio. This is just my office. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, it's sitting on the couch is Ben Felder, uh, sta- staff writer at The Frontier. That's right. How's that it going? Right? Uh, it's pretty good. Ben, always good to see you. I've been a big yeah. fan of yours for a long time. We Thank have you. traveled to international destinations before. I think we just about shut down Cuba a few years back. That's Barely a different podcast altogether. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, okay. But... As Zach said, you are now over at the Frontier, but mm-hmm. you used to run the Oklahoman, as far as I can tell. Why were you fired at the Oklahoman? <laughs> <laughs> because at some point, that's what happens. <laughs> you have to, if you're going to make it in this business, at some point, you've got to be fired by the Oklahoman. Yeah. I have a lot of friends who would attest to that. Specifically um, by the Oklahoman. <laughs> I wouldn't say that I ran things. I was news director when I left, um, but I guess on the you know, taking a look at the hierarchy chart, there was just two above me. So that's pretty close to the top. Yeah. Um, I started out on the investigative desk there and focused mostly on politics and education. Um, had a chance to kind of start a new desk. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I guess it was last year, was offered the the news director job as we were under new ownership and they were kind of shifting some of their some of their digital focus and that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I think that's kind of what they were looking for too. I mean, they were looking for someone who was a little younger Um and maybe more kind of in tune with the staff. Um, you know, I mean, I think I produced pretty well. They, want, they wanted that as well. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed it. It wasn't uh, – uh, I enjoyed kind of trying to shape the coverage. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed uh, – we had a chance to hire some new reporters. I had I, I really enjoyed kind of coaching younger reporters. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I don't know. I, I guess at the end of the day, there's a lot of reasons why I left. And none of them are bad. I, I didn't leave because of any kind of revolt at all. But I think, one, I don't know that I was ready to be an editor. I don't. I mean, I think I did the job fine, and I think I was capable of doing it. And but I, I just, I missed reporting. I, I guess that's the best way to put it. And you were um, more administrative than you were on the ground reporting. Yeah, I just, I, I got kind of burned out. I think by constantly telling people how their story should be, right. feeling like, why don't I just do it myself? You right. know, we have very talented reporters. That's, you know, many that more talented than I do. So, or I am, but, um, so I think I just, I, I, you know, once you go into that editor's role, you usually stick there yeah. and I don't know, and maybe I'll be an editor again and I, I probably would like to be, but I just wasn't ready for that yet in that career. Right. I mean, and I, I don't think I, I think I was ready for the job. I think I, had I stayed, I don't think I would be, uh, you know, frustrated or, or, you know, not enjoying my, my career, but, uh, I wanted to get back to reporting. I also, I kind of wanted to take a step back, um, you know, kind of a lot of evenings working, editing yeah. stories. Yeah. Uh, the the I wasn't looking to leave the Oklahoman, but the opportunity to go to the frontier was one that I wanted to take. I've got some friends over there, especially a good friend that used to work at the Oklahoman, so I kind of had a chance to see what it was like for her through her eyes for the last few years. And, you know, last summer, you know, my eight-year-old son was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and and while that's going well and and the management and care of it is is is, is fairly successful the idea of also kind of working from home mm. and you know having a little bit more flexibility yeah. not less hours per se but just more more flexibility was was really enticing i mean yeah. take him to school every day pick him up from school every day yeah you know that kind of thing um allow us to kind of be on top of that management a little bit more if yeah. even if just a couple extra hours in the afternoon that he doesn't have to go you know to after school care so it's kind of a lot of reasons like that yeah. and i i think also i just i wanted to go somewhere where i felt like i could i could build something yeah um I think the frontier, which has been around for about five or six years, has a really solid foundation, and it just felt like it was kind of ready to like build that next chapter. And the, you know, the the idea of going somewhere that's growing—I mean, they, adding me was a new position, so there's yeah. growth right there. 
and seem to have a trajectory going in the opposite direction that a lot of other news outlets have right now. Okay. And it's a, it's more of a digital platform, right? Yeah, or how would you describe it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's online only. Um, okay. I mean, you'll see our work in some newspapers across the state, you know, with sharing agreements and such, but uh, it's all online. We're a nonprofit. Um, so we're, we're totally supported by readers, foundations, gifts. And uh, our focus is a little bit more on kind of investigative and impact work. So okay. not so much a daily news outlet, although these days it feels like that for sure. Um, but really kind of chasing the stories that sometimes get missed as other news outlets have had their staff depleted. Right. Okay, so we're going to eventually uh, podcast audience with this, this pot, Ben, I count on Ben for the most up to the minute local news relative to the coronavirus. It's true. You text me while I'm writing the story. I'm right. Like, John, just get off my back. Let me finish the story and I'll send you a link. But yeah. No. When I, when I'm listening to a press conference, I'm likely texting Ben. I am taking in the daily now podcast. Yep. Um, just as um, this Ben is how I stay up to date and we'll get there. But I kind of want to start it at 30,000 feet and talk to you a little bit about journalism. You're, you are an above the fold journalist have been for a long time, which in the business, Zach, what that means is he's really good journalist writes the important pieces. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, John. Yeah. Um, but I want you to talk to us a little bit about your, your view from the inside, the state of journalism. And I'm, and I mean, in particular, how do you navigate the backlash against journalism and journalists, um, and how do you navigate the cynicism that's out there in the culture that always wants to filter the words that you write through? Most of the time, it's it's through a particular partisan lens. Yeah. Well, you know, first off, I think for me and my experience and those that are kind of around my age is a little bit unique because we kind of came up, you know, during the recession. So, you know, for example, when I got to the Oklahoma, and that was the biggest outlet, outlet I'd ever worked for with the most resources. But everyone who was over the age of 50 felt like it was the end of days. I mean, mm. because this was the smallest they'd ever been with the you know, fewest amount of resources. Right. So I think trajectory-wise, for some of us who kind of came up in that era, um, we've kind of been used to lean times. We've right. never experienced the days of newspapers where money just seemed to walk through the door. And yeah. those days existed. I mean, it used to be very profitable to own a newspaper because just with 30%, you know, profit was kind of the norm. And now you're lucky if you break even, um, or even come within, you know, with three, 5% decline. Sure. But, uh, so I think that's one thing that's kind of shaped my view on the industry. You know, the other thing that I think is really interesting, um, when you kind of talk about the backlash towards journalism, I think I, I kind of grapple with this because on one hand, I think it exists. On the other hand, I don't know that it's any different. You know, I got my start, like a lot of people did in kind of community newspapers and man, I mean, the the vitriol that you would get from some people if you misspelled someone's name mm. or, you know, you, I mean, whatever. I mean, really simple things right. would get you a lot of, of passionate response. And so I've never felt like it's that this recent surge is anything new. I mean, really? the idea okay. that people will send you hate mail or complain about stories has never really has always existed in my career. Uh, maybe right. that says more about me as a reporter, I guess. But um, the very first story I ever <laughs> wrote in print um, for an official newspaper, the Raytown Post, a small weekly in Missouri, uh, the very first story I wrote was about a city park. And the city manager you know, basically said that it was untrue. And I don't even remember the details of it. I remember thinking at the time, this is great. I wrote the story, my first story, and the city manager is actually responding to it online. I thought that was, you know... The, the goal was achieved, yeah. you know, yeah. um, I think it was factual and accurate. Um, but, uh, so I, I don't feel like this, you know, this kind of fake news, everybody asks like, what do you think about fake news? It's like, well, that claim has always existed, but the term is different. Um, you know, maybe they weren't calling it fake news back then. Right now I say that on the flip side, we obviously are in a new era. I mean, it is different when the president stands up there and, you know, you know, calls the media, you know, the enemy of the people and, and, and such. I do think that maybe for some national outlets, like the New York Times and Washington Post, of which I'm a huge fan um, and a supporter and a subscriber to both. But I think maybe maybe, maybe they haven't seen that backlash as much. I mean, they definitely haven't seen it from a president and they definitely maybe haven't seen it from as many political figures. And sometimes I read that and I kind of go back and forth. I think, man, maybe we just, you know, we need to have thicker skin. Like just mm. move on. Let's, you know, just do our job, keep our head down. But then on the flip side, I'm like, it, it's pretty significant when the president says what he says about that, right? It's dangerous, isn't it? I think so. I think it is. And so, I mean, dangerous for, for a lot of reasons. And so this idea that 
we're now in an era where people don't trust news. I mean, I think we've always had that exist a little bit. Yeah. And maybe with social media, we just see it more because we see what people are thinking the moment they're thinking it. Um, in some ways, I think people have always thought that or some certain segments have thought that. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I, I definitely think things have changed and I don't want to downplay it because I think it's significant. But it is a, you know, it is an interesting world because there are, I mean, I think biased reading maybe has increased quite a bit. Right. And, you know, I always had people who would email or call and complain about a story, especially political stories. And, but they never like, they, you know, they, they criticized the angle, the take, they thought there was an agenda, but for the most part, you know, they never said, I'm going to stop reading. Hmm. And they, and, you know, sometimes I would get an email and say, your stories, you know, for the past couple of years have been really slanted. And I'd be like, well, thanks for reading for a couple of years. I mean, yeah. at least we haven't lost you, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. But so I think biased reading is a huge problem and I don't want to diminish, you know, biasness in journalism because, you know, it's a human enterprise. And so I think it exists. And I, I, I wish people, I wish we did as journalists a better job of, I don't know if teaching media literacy is the right way. I don't know if that's our role. I wish we did a better job of kind of revealing what it is we do and how we do it. Because I think it would shock people to know how much debate and discussion goes into important articles. Really? Um, even, even as now you are with Frontier? Yeah, and it's a little bit different because I'm not in a large <clears throat> newsroom. But just, you know, the amount of, you know, the effort we put in to try to not make a story biased. I mean, sometimes, right. I, I mean, I think you could find examples of stories where maybe we went too far in the other direction uh, in, that, in that regard. But these are not in an era when anybody can write whatever they want and just put it up. And that's fine. Um, that's not how we do it. I mean, right. that's not what we're doing. I mean, yes, sometimes, you know, news is breaking and you got to get something up, you know, pretty quick. But for the most part, the stories that a newspaper or a news outlet like, like ours um, is being carefully crafted. And whether that takes a couple hours or a couple of months, there's a lot of discussion and planning and debate and editing that goes into it. Now, that doesn't mean it's perfect. And it doesn't mean that it's not doesn't have its mistakes. Right. You know, maybe you try to minimize that as much as you can. But I don't think people realize kind of how much effort goes into it yeah zach I, I mean i'm full of questions so you just jump in whenever you want to so what you just said here i don't know, probably a minute and a half ago you said it's human nature to have some semblance of a bias yeah right I think so how do you navigate yours are i'm you're a reflective guy i know that you're aware of your bias so how do you navigate it in the hopes of writing a, a more objective story I really, really work hard at trying to free myself of bias. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm always successful. But what I mean by that is, and this didn't just come to me. I mean, I think this is something I've had to work at, is that when I see an issue, yeah. my first thought is not, what do I think about it? It's, I want to know more about it, right? Yeah. And I think, um, I think those were lessons I learned early on. I mean, I remember covering a small town city council race, and one of the uh, challengers to an incumbent that won was a good friend of mine. And you would probably see me in town having coffee or a beer with him. And I was at his election night party after I wrote the story. Yeah. And when the incumbent challenged that idea that said, well, obviously you were biased for him and you're reporting, I didn't see any bias. And I don't know that, that the story was slanted in its final product. Maybe it was. But that was kind of a moment where I was like, I don't know if I was biased or not, but the perception is there. Mm -hmm. Man, I need, to be, I need to be careful about that. When I'm covering politics, when I'm covering races, um, I don't vote in them. Now that's not a, that's, I don't think that reporters are wrong to vote. So I'm right. not saying that it needs to be a hard and fast rule. Um, some journalists would say it's even more important for you to vote in, in a race that you cover. I find that one, it just makes for an easy deflection when you get pressed by one side to say like, Oh, I'm sure you're supporting the other side. It's like, I'm not even voting in this race, but two, it does kind of free me that my, my mental exercise is not caught up in trying to figure out who am I going to vote for yeah. or how am I going to vote on this issue? In fact, Sometimes when I've gone into the to the ballot box, if it's not an issue that I've that I have, that I'm covering, but so I am going to vote vote on the issue. Sometimes I'm like, well, man, I haven't really spent much time myself thinking about how I should vote. Yeah. I'm just gonna, I kind of stand there for for a yeah. minute trying to trying to think that. So I think I work really hard to try to free it of bias. I also think something that's been helpful in my career is, and I said this earlier. I think sometimes we need to have thicker skin. Is I'm okay with the criticism. And, and if, as long as someone, you know, that emailed or, or wrote a letter or phone called or whatever it may be, even on the street, I mean, as long as they're not like extremely hateful, 
you know, I'll usually write them back and thank them for reading. And, I've seen you do that. And thank for your sharing your opinion. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how much of it is valuable, but I think it's a good exercise to at least show that you can stand up to that and to consider what a reader is thinking. I, that I'm, I'm always extremely appreciative that anybody would read my stuff. You know, yeah. the idea that, that I would work on something and publish it and that anyone would read it, I find to be a great gift. So I don't want to diminish that even if the person hated it, you know, it's I'm finding myself <laughs> resonating yeah. with you so I, many times yeah. <laughs> because we're communicators, each of us. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there, I mean, there's time. Yeah. That, that, I think that's a fair point. I think there are some times in, in, you know, in your sermon, you may be hinting at some of those interactions. And I just want to tell you, just let it, you know, just let, just it, let rip. it go. Yeah. Just let it go, John. Um, I think we've even talked in private. I mean, you've kind of shared some frustrations with something and I'm just like, yeah. you know, forget them. Right. You know, just, you know, move on. And I, I probably have that more luxury than you do. You know, <laughs> um, I can, at the end of the day, I could probably afford to lose a, a, a reader or two and, and it would be good for my mental health and it wouldn't be diminishing to the bottom, bottom line. You kind of have an edict of God to not cast anyone aside. So, to speak. so yeah, there's so a little different, but yes, I mean, I think in communication, um, I, I don't want to share. I don't like to share anything unless I feel like I've got something to say on yeah. it. And, you know, when I'm writing something, I've spent hours, days, weeks, months, whatever it might be, researching this topic, thinking about this topic, talking to people about this topic. Right. So sometimes it, when I see someone just put something out online that I know is like, you know, had very little thought to. Yeah. It's not so much that I think what they wrote is bad or stupid. I, I mean, and sometimes it is, often it is, but it's just like, I just find it really careless and kind of insulting a little bit too. Right. So that's kind of hard in this kind of social media age, right. but I don't like, I don't downplay it. I mean, I think social media has been also an asset for journalism mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Got anything? Okay. So now we're going to start making the turn and we're going to start marching into the news relative to the coronavirus, but still kind of with the foot in that last conversation, let me ask you this. Where do you get your information? Like literally, where do I get yeah. my news? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm a subscriber of multiple newspapers, the Oklahoma and the Kansas City Star, where I'm from. That's mostly for sports coverage. The New York Times, the Washington Post, ProPublica, PBS NewsHour, NPR. I mean, those, are, those are outlets that I, that I frequent, the Marshall Project, um, Chalkbeat, an education uh, online-only publication. So gather and kind of curate then. Yeah. I mean, I'm reading that, – that's kind of where I get a lot of the news that I'm not necessarily working on, per okay. se. I mean, you know, national, local, those kind of things. And I think – you know, I always tell people, like, you know, when they say, how do we know what to trust? And, and that always seems like it's such a – like, how do you – what do you mean how do you know what to trust? You don't yeah. – you can't figure that out for yourself. I mean – and and I – you know, and I need to take a step back and, and realize that not everyone's been in, in – grossed in this is like I have, but, uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm reading established publications that have a relationship with readers and a relationship with the public that are not perfect by any means. Um, but, uh, now I say that, and I think there's a lot of young publications out there that are, are, I mean, we are one of them, you know, just five or six years old. Um, but I think one of the things that makes us trustworthy is I think the, the care that we put into accuracy and thoroughness is demonstrated. And so I think a lot of those outlets I mentioned, I mean, some they're just, you know, historic, you know, newspapers that have a long-term relationship with the community that I think you can trust for the most part, but others that, you know, you can see the the care that they put into the craft of, yeah. of putting together a story. So, I mean, those are the outlets I, I kind of follow. Okay. So now uh, let's talk about, that's what I expected you to say. Cause I, I knew that you were a, a voracious consumer of news and that you, you have your own filters. Now I'm kind of asking a little different question. Now as you have reported and as you are reporting so often on all things coronavirus, where do you get that information? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, same outlets in a lot of okay. ways from a national perspective. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a very national story and a very local story. Yeah. And what it looks yeah. like locally is very different right yeah. now, right? In a lot of places. And I think there's a lot of local outlets that are doing doing great work. I think the more, if you double the amount of journalists in Oklahoma City, I think that would be great. You'd double the competition, but I think that would be ultimately better for me, better for our outlet, better for the community. I mean, I, I still turn to the Oklahoman. I think that they're doing a great job. Uh, Nondoc is a local mm-hmm. online publication that really has a bent towards the capital. So I think they kind of provide mm-hmm. that element as well. Oklahoma Watch is uh, sometimes feels like a sibling of ours. They're an investigative outlet um, that has 
certain topics that I think they do a really good job of coverage in domestic violence and, and, and even at the Capitol. Uh, they actually have two reporters based at the Capitol on a regular basis. Um, so those are some of the kind of local outlets I turn to. And, uh, but, uh, but yeah, like I said, this is kind of a national and local story. And so really, you know, what you're seeing out of New York looks different yeah. as of right now. Right now. Uh, than it yeah. does necessarily here. And I'm going to ask that question yeah. too. Zach, after this, can we put some of those resources that he just mentioned, can we put it somewhere on like the... I guess the podcast feed. So the folks want to check out obviously frontier, but also non-doc and that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing I, I, that I really appreciate about you, Ben, is that, man, uh, you seem to be at every important press conference and you're not just (laughs) there. You're close enough to ask a question. So it's like you're, you, you are your own primary resource at some point, (laughs) Right. Like there's a skill to that. Right. Like how do you know where to be in order to get the best information? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, well, one thing to keep in mind and as I mean, you're talking about maybe like gubernatorial pressers and Department of Health and yeah. those kind of things. So before I became news director, I, I actually so I actually covered the gubernatorial race two years ago. OK. And then the transition for Governor Stead in, in his early months. So I I kind of developed a relationship with that camp enough to kind of, uh, you know, I'm not a complete novice when it comes to what the governor's doing or sometimes thinking. I don't mean I don't read his mind, but I mean just kind of I, I know their policies, yeah. I know their platform, yeah. and I kind of know what to expect a little bit. So I have some of those relationships. Um, and I've been doing this now for 10 years in this uh, city and state. And I think that's – if I ever went somewhere else, I think the biggest challenge is, and the thing that's kind of scary to me is, to, is starting over. Yeah. And there's something to be said for a fresh set of eyes coming in brand new. No, asking, there's nothing to be said for that. But, you need to stay here forever. But <laughs> there's also a lot to be said about having those relationships and having yeah. people that you can call and you know they'll pick up the phone or they'll, they'll respond and I will say that's, that has become a little harder at the frontier. I don't, well, not a lot harder, but I mean, if I were to call someone from the Oklahoman and leave them a message and say, I'm running the story, I need your comment. I mean, I'm going to get a call back for the most yeah. part. Yeah. And I, you know, we don't have that history. We don't have that reach at the frontier right. as much. So the ramifications for ignoring our calls are probably not seen as great for maybe lawmakers as it is for the Oklahoman. So it is a little different now. But uh, but yeah, especially this week, I mean, everyone's holding a press conference. Now, I will say it, it has become easier. Well, in some ways, it's become easier because everyone's gone to video press conferences. And so they're doing them over Zoom, whether it's the State Board of Education or the mayor of Oklahoma City or, or the governor. Um, the last in-person press conference the governor had was Sunday, and he's had, I think, one or two since then. In fact, they were going to do a video conference or video press conference, um, but it wasn't clear to me that they weren't going to let media actually in the room. So I went Sunday because I thought they didn't say they're not going to let anyone in. And it was just myself and a colleague from non-doc, Trey Savage. We were the only two members of the media to show up. Everyone else was video conferencing in. And this was the first time they had done it. And so when it became time to ask questions, we got first crack because we were in the room. But then the phone system wasn't working right. So we just were (laughs) able to kind of keep firing away. And so there's a value to being there in person. But now, now all of these are... Our, our video conference as, as we're practicing social distancing. Um, and in some ways I, I've kind of enjoyed it because it allows me to do it at my desk. I've got a better setup sure. to take notes and tweet and stuff like that, but there's still something to be said for being in person. But uh, um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really it. I mean, I think it's having like just those kind of relationships and those connections. I don't necessarily always mean friendly relationships, sure. but just the, the more you understand of how, how the, how, different levels of government work. I mean, through my 10 years, I mean, I've covered Oklahoma City Hall. I've covered a lot of education. and I've covered a lot at the Capitol. And for those who are kind of siloed or haven't had a chance to like work in those other areas, it can be more challenging. I mean, if yeah. you're covering the Capitol and then all of a sudden there's a an education story, I think this helped me during the teacher's walkout a couple of years ago, is that a lot of Capitol reporters who did a great job and not diminishing what they did, but it was the first time they really were covering an education story. And for me, I felt like it was kind of a natural transition because I had covered politics, but I also covered education very closely. So I was able to really, um, you know, kind of seamlessly move into that, into that space. And you just work so hard. I mean, you, you work so hard to gather the news and then report the news. Have you always had that kind of a work ethic? Um, 
Yeah, I never really thought about like work ethic. I mean, I like to work. I mean, I just like to, you know. You I love just, this. I, I enjoy you? doing this. Yeah. yeah. Now, I will say there's also some freedom and flexibility of it. If I want to, you know, I go pick up my kid after school and I want to go out to the park at three in the afternoon and throw the ball around, I can do it, you know, yeah. in this business as long as, you know, there's not a pressing story to write. I think there is typically with most employers, not always, but most employers, there's a grace extended because, and I know this as being a former editor, um, you can have your free time now because at some point you can't <laughs> because yeah, I'm going to call, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to call you in yeah. and I expect you to come. So there's a little bit of that, yeah. but no, I, I, you know, I really enjoy it. I like, if I wasn't in journalism, I would be reading a lot of news. I, I think the best part of this job is that when something happens, I get paid to go find it out. Yeah. Like what, what, what's going on yeah. instead of reading the story. Yeah. I mean, there's no license to be a journalist. Technically, Anybody could show up at a press conference. Now, you know, if it started to get too crowded, they may start to dictate who's in and out. But yeah. anybody can call or ask for a comment or, or file a records request. Anybody can do this in the public. Um, but so there's nothing like special about what I'm doing. But I but I'm I have the, the time and the freedom and sure. I'm getting paid to do it. And so that's what I really enjoy. You know, sometimes I think that if and when I'm ever retired, I probably would still file a records request and, you know, <laughs> ask people to comment on this, <laughs> even though I'm man. just a cold case. I do, but I no, I do. I do enjoy the work and I probably, um, I don't know. This almost sounds like a humble brag. I say I almost probably work too much and I don't mean it like that. I just, um, and I think it's good for like our household. Cause like my wife is very like nine to five. That's what she wants. Like yeah. she really enjoys that. And she likes working at a desk and, you know, working with spreadsheets and she's good at it. Yeah. She's very good at it. And mm -hmm. I would hate it, you know, mm -hmm. and I don't, and I think she doesn't, I don't think she envies my, my schedule or yeah. my, my routine. So, yeah, Ben, let's, uh, let's go ahead and pivot and we're going to talk a little bit about what's been going on lately. This has been a pretty pretty chaotic especially a couple weeks uh since that thunder game uh man it's a blur yeah. at this point i don't remember when it was um could you take us through you know and it seems like from an oklahoma perspective uh we've been experiencing something different in oklahoma city uh, and even tulsa but like as opposed to like the rest of the state and like governor stitt and all that stuff um can you take us through sort of that progression that we've gone through in the development of this covid 19 story and how it looks from a media perspective yeah it's very interesting in oklahoma because i th i think you could argue that we have in oklahoma in the middle america here we have one of the most unique positions in the world and we have the fewest excuses to not get this right. Because I mean, it literally started on the other side of the world. Right. And then right. it spread through Asia and Europe and, and we saw, and they were saying it's going to happen there, you know, and even it's hard for me to I mean, you even believe that when you see those images and then it hit the coast and, and it's coming in. I mean, it almost feels like it's just, it started on the other side of the world and it's just wrapping its arms around. Yeah. And so, um, we don't have as many excuses to not get this right because yeah. we we've seen what's coming. I mean, we don't, I hope I'm wrong, but I, it will be in the thousands next week mm. here. It will be bad. I mean, it will be really bad. It'll be bad enough to where I think it, this time, you know, we'll look back a week ago, man. Can you imagine we only had, you know, fewer than 300 now I hope I'm wrong. And, and maybe the steps that we're taking is going to help mitigate that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hope that we get to a point where people are like, why did we shut everything down? Nobody got sick. You know, not that many people got sick yeah. because that'll mean it worked, you yeah. know, but, uh, so I think we're kind of a unique position from that perspective. We're also kind of unique because I think the day that the country kind of woke up to it a little bit, I mean, as a whole, I mean, Seattle and California were already kind of already in the, in the mm -hmm. reality of it. But that Thunder game was pretty big. I think when the NBA decided we're, we're calling off a game, we're calling off the season for right now, or at least suspending it. Um, that was a wake up call to a lot of people yeah. because obviously they don't do that lightly. Yeah. And the dominoes started falling because yeah. uh, that's when everything else started shutting down. Yeah. Yeah. And so, it's all, it's been amazing to me how much what you didn't think you'd see, you see it the next day. Mm -hmm. um, and what I mean by that is, you know, probably a day before the Thunder game, the idea, I mean, they were talking about, you know, playing in front of empty arenas and, and some of the conference tournaments in the NCAA were, were, were shuddering, I suppose. But the idea that the NBA would cancel, I mean, that just seemed far-fetched. And, mm -hmm. and now it's like what took us so long and, yeah. um, you know, concerts and stuff and schools. I mean, the last week it you know, I think a lot of people would have found it unfathomable that we would close schools and here we are. 
I, I think a lot of people would have been surprised a week ago to see the steps the governor has taken. Now, a lot of people would like to see him do more, but I mean, just it's, it's developing so quickly. And so, and you know, the, the bar is different every single day. And I think that's, what's really unique about this story. But then again, I, like I said, it's, it's unique in the sense that we have a perspective that, um, everybody else in the world did, but not as long as we've, you know, had it. And, I think I also worry in Oklahoma, you know, you, you see what's happening in Louisiana right now. Yes. And oh my gosh, well, they we'll haven't talked about it. Not everybody will be. Well, I mean, Louis, Louisiana now is like, I mean, it's, a, it's exploding with cases and hospitalizations and deaths. And, and now they're on a trajectory. Unlike <laughs> any other place. I, th- there's some, there's a couple theories on why that is. And, and maybe by tomorrow there'll be a definitive theory. I mean, something Mardi Gras a couple weeks before, you know, whatever it may be. And obviously they're on, the coast and a tourist area in New Orleans. Um, it's also like a, a poor healthcare state, poor health, health quality, uh, uh, poor health metrics. I, mm. I have always thought since day one of this story, man, I don't know that Oklahoma can handle this. I mean, if there's a state that is ripe for an outbreak, it feels like here, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not a coastal state. We're not a big city. We're not an international port. But when you see the depleted healthcare system in rural Oklahoma, when you see the whole the poor health metrics that we have, and in the rankings we have, and and so many quality of life indicators, that's not going to help us through that. Mm-hmm. Now, I hope I'm wrong about that, and I'm not necessarily predicting that to be the case. But that's ha- that's what I have thought about a lot is our is our health system not just like the hospitals. And healthcare, although I think there's some major questions there. I mean, we've seen hospitals close in some rural communities, and um, I don't know. It's eerie. I don't know if you've seen the Netflix series Pandemic, Um, but the first episode, one of the highlights is a is a Jefferson County, Oklahoma doctor in the hospital. She's the only one, and she's talking about if there's an outbreak here, I don't, we'd be done for. Um, And this was before the coronavirus. So I think um, I don't think this is a state that can handle too much stress on. You know, I don't know that we're as structurally sound in these areas. And so I'm really, you know, fearful, interested to see what that ends up looking like here. Yeah. Well, then can you give us and I know you do this every day you on your podcast and then with the with the written stuff that you do. But can you give us what you would consider to be the really important, most recent news (coughs) relative to the Oklahoma City and Oklahoma experience of COVID-19? You know, I think. The interesting part of the story is that context really matters and one stat doesn't tell you the whole story. I mean, we're seeing an increase in number of positive tests, but that's also partly because we're seeing an increase in testing. And, you know, we're in the high 200s as we're taping this now. I mean, in reality, we're probably in the thousands, but in terms of positive tests, um, but we don't know how many of those were like tested 24 hours ago, 48 hours ago, days ago. I mean, so the numbers we have today are really kind of could be a snapshot of what life was really like a week ago. We, you know, we really don't know that, but I think the thing that we're going to have to really pay attention to is not just the number of positive cases. Cause I think, I think that's going to go into the thousands. And when all is said and done in this country, it, it could be that we're in the millions of people who have become affected by this. And hopefully most are not symptomatic or, or aren't having major issues. The number of hospitalizations I think is going to be important to, to watch that number I think is now kind of where we need to kind of shift our focus is because, you know, if that gets into the hundreds, that's a huge stress on the health system here in terms of the number of workers we have, ventilators, all those kind of things. So I really think the numbers in this story are very important, but no one number tells you the whole story. And so you kind of have to look at it collectively. And then I think you also, we need to pay attention to the, to the, to the human stories, right? This is a really hard story in the sense that we don't have images inside the hospitals for the most part. Right. right. I mean, we we can see the refugee crisis. I mean, it kind of it, it becomes a little bit more of an important story in our conscious when we see the images um, of death along the coastlines. Right. I mean, a child face down in the sand. Um, we can see the destruction of a storm and kind of know that that's a big deal. We don't see that now for, for obvious reasons. I mean, they're not going to allow the media into the hospitals, although I wonder if we're going to get to that point where they're saying it's important for us to show this. But this doesn't really feel like the crisis that it is, I don't think, because even right. in New York, it's, I mean, you have an image of, of a, of a morgue tent outside, which is pretty powerful. Um, but we, but, but it's still a tent, right? You can't, you, you can't see the bodies like you've had in other, other places. And so uh, I, I'm not, I'm not arguing that we need to be given access to these hospitals or health centers. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying this is a unique story because the visuals on this are not as, uh, 
are not as as apparent. Are, Which are, plays into the slow response. I think so. It's an we, invisible thing. And so I think as as journalists too, you know, when we write about the health impact, as we talk to people going through this, I mean, it's important for us to get our words right. You know, we don't want to uh, dramatize it any more than it really is, sensationalize it. But we also want to be real and raw. We want to, you know, so you got you kind of kind of have to feel that balance and and really try to you know hit the air, hit the the target in the middle. But uh, I think that's where it becomes important. It's really, you know, right now words matter because we don't have the pictures and the videos. Now that may change pretty soon and we'll see how that, what that looks like in the days to weeks to come. But I think that's what makes this kind of an interesting story right now. So we're under a safer at home proclamation from the governor. And at the time of the proclamation, there were 19 counties that were implicated because there was at least one yeah. uh, positive positive test right yeah one confirmation but now we're up several well, well more over counts. 30 yeah yeah, yeah. I'm not sure the exact number but I so mean. the the at the end of the day it will be for all intents and purposes it will be a statewide movement the right assumption would be yeah yeah so can you walk us through some of the people listening to us may not have even been aware that we're under new guidelines <laughs> yeah. what are what are the highlights of the of the governor's proclamation and then i don't think the mayor nuanced it too much uh i think he just reinforced but uh, there are some things that are unique to oklahoma city there are um that's a great question and one i think we're all still trying to figure out yeah i think i asked it i need to know (laughs) i think i think first and foremost this proclamation is was an appeal to oklahomans to take this seriously yeah because you know, you're not going to see the National Guard. You're not going to see police enforcing this in any no dramatic law. way. Yeah. So it's, so it's really going to have to be dependent on people taking it seriously. And so what the order was in those in those affected counties was that non-essential businesses should close. Non-essential medical procedures should halt. Be delayed. Mm-hmm. Now, that, you know, let's talk about the non-essential medical procedures. I mean, I think that, you know, dentist procedures, yes. But what constitutes an emergency? Yeah. And so there's a lot of questions there. You know, I've published a story today about a pediatrician I'd spent some time with a couple of days ago, and she was worried that so many parents were canceling their well checks where they get vaccinations that she was worried we're going to have an outbreak of measles or whooping cough or chicken pox. And, and there's some reason to be concerned, but also medical professionals are saying, hey, those, you, should, you should still do that. Still go get your, you know, your well child check and your vaccinations if you safely can. Um, but even I had, I texted her before I published the story because I spent time with her before the order. And I said, did this change anything? And she goes, I don't know. We're still open though. (laughs) So, you know, so there's some questions about what that means for the businesses. It seemed to be pretty focused when he issued the order, but then 24 hours later he amended it and it seemed to really cast a wide net. Yeah. Even so much so that there's reports of like golf courses being seen as essential businesses. Really? At least some have been opened, and that seems to be, you could read it that way as, as saying. Were you troubled uh, how many times he referenced massage parlors? <laughs> no, I, uh, I actually didn't catch that as much. Yeah, I saw that afterwards. But, wow. Like, that was um, very interesting. Yes. The cities of Oklahoma City and Tulsa and Norman and, and many others, I mean, they've obviously shut down restaurants. Yeah. Um, and that's a big one. And yeah. shut down events yeah. and gatherings. And so those are really the big ones. But beyond that, um, it's really dependent on citizens to now the mayor of norman unless i have this wrong i believe that she issued a a shelter in place order she did um on the political spectrum i don't know that i would put stitt all the way to the right but i definitely would put bria clark pretty far to the left so there's some there's a, a there's some difference in political viewpoints on this. And, and she's the one who who's actually said hey we have no excuse not to get this right because we've seen what's coming and I kind of agree with that perspective, but yeah, they've put down a shelter in place and have and have, have taken it more a more strict approach. Yeah, and I mean whether that's enough, we'll, we'll see. I mean, you can still, I I guess I I mean, is my job essential? I don't know. I I had to go out early this morning at seven to get a photo for a colleague in Tulsa who's doing a story, and it wasn't as congested, but the highways were still pretty congested. Um, so people going to work, you know, people doing something. Um, I know major companies have closed down. My wife works at Chesapeake and they're working from home. But uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's a there's a lot of question and amb- ambiguity with it. Um, and the governor has also said that business can apply to find out if they should they be deemed be essential. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it's really dependent, I think, on on businesses to take this seriously. One, you know, one big storyline right now is Hobby Lobby has a corporate headquarters here right. in Oklahoma City, and and they've refused to close down, or at least as of right before this podcast, maybe something's changed. And some people said, "Hey, why is this a big deal? Why are you putting pressure on Hobby Lobby?" I mean, just a big company. I mean, it's the governor is has a lot of power, and he's used some of that power. But a lot of the power is going to be with these corporations and these sure. companies and events and what they decide to do. And so I think I think. While we may not be, while we normally may not put as pressure much pressure on a private business like we would on a government entity, I think things have changed a little bit today. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting that Chad Richardson would yeah, write Paycom. that scathing letter. Yeah, who runs Paycom would write that scathing letter, only to have the governor do many of the things that were bullet pointed in that letter. I don't think that's connected, John. There's no way that's connected. <laughs> <laughs> was that not interesting to you? It was. I was actually surprised that the governor took the steps he did when he did. And the reason was is because the day, the night before um, was when kind of President Trump started first saying, hey, we could be open by Easter. You know, I want to see the churches packed on Easter and, and we need to reopen the company in a co- our country in a couple of weeks. It seemed like he was giving some political cover. Right. To some maybe Republican governors to um, agree with him on that. Yeah. And hours later, Governor Stick at least went in the opposite direction. How far he went, you know, we can debate, but at least went in the opposite direction. And I thought that was significant. Yeah. Okay. You you have mentioned that you're concerned about health care systems in Oklahoma, maybe even the hospitals here in larger metropolitan areas. Uh we would like to ask you where you see good anything that you would put in the category of good news. Now we're still talking about coronavirus issues. I love the the way that you and your your partner in the the podcast, and she's always talking about Cassie, Walter the Cassie dog. McClung, yeah, yeah. But I want I want to know if you see any signs of good news where the virus or the treatment of the virus is concerned out there, like from a health perspective. Yeah, that's a tough question. I've really been focused, and Cassie is kind of our health beat reporter our, our focus is on health issues and so she's kind of coming out from that way i've covered some of the policy and politics of the of the issue and then a lot of education especially this week as the schools are, are shutting down for the rest of the year um so i'm not like as up to date on like the health aspect in terms yeah. of like possible treatments or vaccinations or where or I anywhere see. that you see maybe within your sphere of knowledge man that's a tough uh that's a tough question. I listened. I knew you were going to ask me some version of this question because I was listening to the last episode with your dad. Although it was hard to not be distracted by your your father's language on this. I'm program. telling you what that was, made me made cool. me feel a lot more comfortable coming on. <laughs> yeah. I was like, "There's not ways that I can really screw this up <laughs> no. if I uh, if I get talking." We're have to we have keep have it a loose. Parental here. guidance uh, <laughs> warning on that last one. Anyhow, um, anyway, but I'm I'm more hopeful about what things could look like after. I'm I'm hopeful that we that we I don't know I think hopefully we rethink society hmm. in some major ways and what that ends up looking like who knows and if that just ends up getting um I mean we're at a time right now you know as you often are when you see tragedy and crisis where people kind of pull together and you see those stories and um you know people donating to hospitals and people scrambling to help, you know, students and families that have lost their jobs. I mean, you, you see, there's a lot of those stories around and it always make you kind of feel good and feel kind of hopeful for humanity. Um, I think the thing that's really interests me about this whole story is that we are, I'm always interested in, in terms of reporting, like those who kind of live on the edge because, you know, they, they often are in the shadows. We don't I don't think we do much as much reporting on, on poverty and yeah. kind of the true working class as we should. And this has really opened our eyes to how how much on the edge people are. And, you know, even this week from, you know, Washington, you know, issuing checks and saying we got to get people money and we got to help out in, the, in any way that we can. It seems like a pretty significant posture. Now, the, the motives may be just because we want to get our consumerist economy going again. OK, but I think it's really opened our eyes to how many people are on the edge. Yeah. And there were these problems before. I mean, there were people who lost their jobs yeah. and their world was shattered yeah. before. And yeah. now it's just in a larger number. And so if we can take that stuff more seriously with more uh, respect and compassion, I think that can be a good thing. Um. Now, keep in mind, we're barreling towards a, an election, you know, which yeah. will 
taint this whole thing this year. So who knows what this ends up looking like. But that's kind of what I'm I'm hopeful is that whenever this is done next month, next year, whatever. Um, Whoa. That there are hang some on, practices next month, next year, I whatever. Don't, <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, yada, I yada, definitely yada. don't think we're in a position to say we know. I mean, as someone who's covering education really closely, schools have also been instructed to prepare that you're not going to open up in August or September. Goodness gracious. Now. You have to prepare months in advance. So if that's a if that's a possibility, you should be prepared. You know that's you know part of that is just hedging your bets. But I mean, there is you teachers know. prepare months in advance is what yeah. you're telling me. Well, they're supposed to. I'm going to write, this. Do. Yeah. write this down. I live with a teacher. Um, <laughs> yeah, can you text that to Kelly? <laughs> so I think she what makes great. me I Sorry, think what Kel. makes me hopeful is that that maybe we kind of reorient the way that we view, we view society and view our neighbor after this. Now, sometimes it can also bring the worst out in people. So who knows? I'm kind of hopeful in like what it means for my son and, you know, kids that how is this going to shape their worldview about how we should behave in society, how we should treat one another, even just little social norms. I mean, I kind of joked with Lori that, you know, Satchel, when he's in his 80s, his grandkids are going to be, Mommy, Daddy, why does Satchel wash, Grandpa Satchel wash his hands every single time he goes into the, you know, the house? You know, well, you have to remember, he lived through this uh, this period of life. but um, The virus bowl. Yeah. The vi- <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, that hopeful question, is tar- it's really hard for me. Yeah. It's really hard for me because... And one reason it's hard for me is because I think as a personal mechanism for myself, just to keep my sanity, is I don't think about after this. Hmm. Um, now, that's hard because I know, like, you know, in your your sermon on Sunday, it was video or that was shared, streamed, you talked about that a lot. Like, we're going to get past this and this kind of hopeful yeah. message at some point, And we're going to have this huge passing the peace ceremony to which I'm like, have we learned no lessons, John? <laughs> um, <laughs> We'll I, all I say that drenched. as a guy who just stays there sitting. I, yeah, but, yeah. Okay. We'll but, all be drenched yeah. in pur- Purell. We've learned nothing. <laughs> um, no, but I think like for me, I don't know that I can. And it's hard because my wife and I think most people are like, you know, I, I just when is this going to be over? And, and, and I, I just I need something to hope for. And I just don't know, for me, it does me any good to really think, what does after this look like? Part of that's because of my job. I'm kind of, I'm right. in the day to day, the moment in the of moment. it. And everything about this moment screams, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think that's right. So it's hard to really kind of look past. But I think that's also where I kind of find hope is that maybe this is something that reorients society in a way that dramatically changes things, whether it's simple. I mean, I, I hope, and I don't say this like... It's a political issue, so it's hard to not make this sound political. But like a lot of people lost their jobs, and they also lost their health insurance. Yeah, I mean, I think it should kind of wake us up a little bit to the absurdity of that. And if that makes me kind of biased, I mean, so to speak, do I believe everybody should have healthcare access to healthcare? Yes, I don't take a position on specific policies, especially if I'm covering the issue. But I mean, I think people need more access to healthcare, and I think the fact that we're just, hopefully this is a wake up call that like, hey, everyone lost their jobs and they lost their healthcare at a time when they need it the most. Like, yeah. maybe there's something wrong with that. Yeah. Or hey, a lot of people lost their jobs and they now are have nothing to fall back on. I mean, yeah. maybe we need to, um, you know, reconsider that. I think you're going to see a huge spotlight on inequities in education mm-hmm. that have always existed, mm-hmm. but are now going to be even greater. I mean, today, most of the day today, I've been talking to district leaders across the state, kind of getting, trying to grasp how they are preparing for this distance learning. Mm-hmm. And everyone's in a tough spot. But some districts are at a place where like, well, it's going to be tough, but you know, we're prepared to do it in this way. Some districts like Oklahoma City, they're just trying to get through today. Yeah, um, They have kids they know they'll never see again this yeah. year that are off the map. They, yeah. uh, you know, I was talking to you know, one person who said, you know, some of the schools where they have teen mom programs, that's where they provide them with baby formula. I mean, now the schools are shut. So now how do you get the baby formula to these moms? I mean, just little simple things like that. When you have a school where kids are just trying to survive, now you've taken away that survival mechanism. And I hope it makes us kind of reconsider the burden yeah. we put on schools. And um, and I'm not saying that we never need to be critical of schools or ask tough questions because we definitely do. But, you know, they're asked to do so much. And yeah. And a lot of it is beyond their control. It's everything, all the challenges they face are outside the classroom walls. They just have to deal with it once these kids walk in. So I I hope that kind of spotlight, that spotlight is put on inequity issues in that way too. Ben, you're the most compassionate communist we've ever had on our show here. (laughs) Compassionate communist is a good band name. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. 
um, I, I do mourn a little bit that this has been and obviously will continue to be politicized, probably more so because we're in an election year. Um, but I really appreciate your posture in the midst of it all. Uh, I do, I, I do know, and I do, I have noticed that you work really hard to be even handed on things so that you can report the facts. And if somebody's going to read bias into it at some point, it's as the preacher, sometimes you, you just speak it and you have to leave the responsibility with the receiver of the information. Well, I don't, yeah, I appreciate that. And I think, I think there's a, I mean, there's obviously a place for partisanship and people to have opinions. Yeah. And I, I would encourage most people to have opinions, right? Yeah. I mean, being biased is not a bad thing. I just think right. it's bad in my profession. Right. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, this week we've heard people say like, well, is it, is it all this really worth it to save a few million people? I actually think that question out and when so, saying that out loud I hope this is the case. I think people are like, yeah, it probably is. Like, it probably is. Like, <laughs> Did probably... you hear yourself? <laughs> and I actually think like, and I don't, we didn't talk about this, but you know, today is actually an official day of prayer yeah. that Governor Stitt has issued. And I, we don't have time to get, nor do I necessarily care to like go through my whole thoughts on the issue. But the, where I see the positive is maybe it brings some credibility to the subject for people who need that. Right. Um, there some reporting last year or last week going up to some rural communities that weren't necessarily taking this seriously. Oh, I see. Yeah. And, and it sure. may be some people in some religious circles who aren't taking this seriously. And, you know, sure. I know some people will scoff and laugh and roll their eyes. And a lot of people will hark back to, you know, when Mary Fallon had a day of prayer for oil prices. Um, and I get all those thoughts and maybe I feel the same way, but mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I'm not saying I do. Who's to say? But... <laughs> Maybe bring some credibility to this issue. It can't hurt, right, yeah. to tell people, like, this is serious enough that we need to do take yeah. a posture that we believe in. So I, there seems to be more – we've advanced from where we were a week ago. Right. And um, and it's easy – it's always easy to get caught up when the president's saying, rightfully so, he's the president. But, you know, he's saying, I think we should reopen the country in a couple of weeks. Well – he hasn't really shut anything down. It's the states, right? Right. And the states are, you know, the state leaders are the ones on the ground and they're seeing the cases. Um, you know, I think that's, I have faith in that. I have faith yeah. that state leaders can be like, all right, we see our, our citizens suffering, our residents suffering. So obviously we're going to take the precautions that we need to. Yeah. And, you know, you get different solutions and different proposals and policies in different states, but it seems like we are taking this more seriously as a country now. And I mean, hopefully we continue to do that. Yeah. Man. Ben, this has been awesome. We're yep. not done yet. We nope. do have a couple more things. Uh, first, we want to give you an opportunity before rapid fire questions to mm. just plug anything that you want to plug frontier wise or, or whatever, anything that you feel like people need to be reading or listening to or anything. Well, like that. yeah, like I said, I mean, I do work at the frontier ReadFrontier.org is the website and you're welcome to donate. And I invite you to do that. ReadFrontier.org. Re- yeah. .org. Um, and you can donate one time recurring donation. I mean, that's extremely helpful. Um, and allows us to do what we do. But I would say, like, support some news outlet. I mean, subscribe to a paper, support a nonprofit news outlet, even if it's not mine. You know, yeah. I think it's just, it's a good investment, even if it's five bucks. Um, that would be just my invitation. Consider the frontier, but if not, you know, who do you read for free? Whose paywall are you getting around right now? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe sign up for that. And what's the name of your podcast? So Listen Frontier, if you look that up in the podcast feed, we were doing a weekly podcast and just on any subject. And then last week we pivoted to a daily COVID-19 in Oklahoma podcast. So it's in the Listen Frontier feed, but every day we're doing a podcast um, on just kind of the news of the day. Yeah, I find it with the title COVID-19 in Oklahoma. Yeah, I think you can find it that way too, but it's in the same feed. So if you subscribe to that, if and when we ever get back to the Listen Frontier weekly episode, it should still appear in that that feed. That's great. All right, here we go. Rapid fire questions. Mm-hmm. We have not prepared Ben for any of nope. these. These will be super interesting because I've prepared some that are yeah, specific weird. to our guests. I know. I, I do have a couple loaded up. Okay, well, you go ahead uh, since you're loaded. Ben, is it, well, mine's a two-parter, is it or isn't it true that you are from Kansas City or you have some affiliation with Kansas City? True, Missouri side. Okay. Um, how about them Chiefs? Yeah. Yeah. And they can shut down the season and just keep our – I mean, honestly, the eternal champion. If I didn't think they had a good chance of winning next year, I might actually believe that. Yes, I know. Yes, a pretty big Chiefs fan. I know, Chiefs man. It's been. I went my whole life without seeing any championship until the Royals a few years back, and then Chiefs. hard to believe. Yeah, so it's, it's been, been a great run. 
<laughs> a little greedy in here, boys, don't you think? Uh, let's just spread that wealth around a little bit, what, if you don't mind. What are, what are you, a Cowboys fan? A little bit. <laughs> okay, hey, uh, Ben, strangest email critique, or strangest critique you've ever gotten from a reader or listener? Oh, man. Or funniest. I would or like funniest. To, I would like to hear funniest yeah. as well. I don't know. There's a couple I'm thinking of, and I, despite your dad's... We, we can believe anything sure that we can believe. Anything. Yeah. I, you know what? I've... Um, I don't know, weirdest one I've ever had. I used to collect them. You know, I used to kind of collect. Uh, I think I, I could probably find that. I wish I would have known this question was coming. Um, I I guess. Oh, here's here's what I like. I say this facetiously. Love. This happens a lot. Um, and I think it happens to other journalists, too. But I don't know. There is some. I think it's the same person. But there is some woman in Oklahoma that used to be an English teacher. And she will cut out the article and she will circle grammatical error. Error, and she will send it back to you and write out a very lengthy letter about oh. it. Now she won't sign her name, and there's no return address. Um, but she is uh, diligent. But you have a sample of the handwriting. I, I guess I have a sample of the handwriting. Uh, uh, I may have uh, something to cross-reference. I'm, just, with I'm fascinated both by the time you have and the, the inspiration audacity. to do that. Yeah, the, I just I want to know your story. The like, level tell of me care that it takes to literally cut out a newspaper and then write a letter. So I think that's kind it. of the weird. Like it's just kind of odd to me, you know. Um, Have you and, ever been threatened? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. I mean, not like in a like like specifics where they know where I live or anything like that, but uh, like something like you know, well, how would you like it if I came over there and whatever, you know. Um, wow. So yeah, it happened. Okay. Right. Yikes. Told I'm a bad writer all the time in which I said, okay, okay. <laughs> <Just> okay. <laughs> Fair. Well, I guess join the line over here. Um, when you hang out with Satchel, what is your favorite thing to do together? Well, right now, so he's really into football. All right. Um, As he, should he does not mind. I don't think that he's not in school, but his flag football season was, <sighs> is, is delayed. Yeah. Um, he's the quarterback on the team. Oh, and he, I mean, he takes it seriously. And uh, we have, we've gotten into the habit now. We live right by a park, like practically in the park. And so we go out there a lot and we'll play catch. And we were, the last four or five days, we've been doing long toss, which is probably not advised for an eight-year-old. But uh, we <laughs> yeah. go out there and just like chuck the ball as far as we can to each other. Well, I mean, our quarterback is Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> yeah. so, and so Which is not good for kids to see, actually. I mean, to be honest with you. All right, Satchel, no look past. But... <laughs> He has got an arm, and I guess I'm allowed to be a proud dad in that yeah, moment. But I, I mean, actually, yeah. yesterday my arm was tired from the previous days, and I mean, there were he was throwing the ball further than further than I was. Lefty, righty. He's a right-hander. Yeah, nice. He just, and he just and he's focused, and he takes it seriously, and, and I mean, he's he's joyful about it too. But uh, so I, I'd say throwing the football around is probably right now the biggest biggest activity. Yeah. Favorite news show on TV? News. Yeah. Um, I really like the weekly that the New York Times does. Okay. Um, and you can find that on, I think it's FX and Hulu. So it streams too. The weekly. I think the PBS NewsHour is a refreshing show okay. on television. It's hard to find good news on television. How I mean, about on the radio? On the radio. Or audio of any kind. Yeah. Um, I'm a pretty religious listener to the 538 Politics yeah. Podcast. I think Same. they do a really good job. Um, you know, I said I like the weekly. I do like the daily as well. That they do, but um, last week tonight, John Oliver. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. good. But yeah, I'd say five thirty eight is probably the kind of the news. I I've, I listen to a lot of sports podcasts from Kansas City, but uh, five thirty eight is probably the news pod, good. podcast I listen to the most. Yeah, when you're not consuming news stuff, like what do you what do you do to unwind? Do, I do you unwind? Yeah, I do. I do. I really I love. We have a front porch with a swing, and I like to just go out there and read. And now it's getting warmer enough to do that, so that's that's really fun. Um, you know, I, I said we live by a park. We moved to that house because of the park. We wanted, we, we had previously lived a block away from the park and it was too far. We wanted to be closer <laughs> to the park. So we bought this house. Be closer right. to the we park. wanted to be closer to the park. It was too far of a walk to go run around in the park. And so we, uh, um, so I love going out there and I, and, and just kind of hanging out with the family there. Um, you know, I like, I mean, I like watching television streaming and stuff like that. I'm a big Chiefs and Royals fan, so. And pretty pretty consumed with that when the seasons are are going. Yeah, I read a lot. I, mean, I say read nonfiction. I I can't. Fiction is hard for me. I just I can't read fiction. I, either. I fiction. am like, what's the point of this? Right, it didn't really happen. I don't understand. <laughs> what am I learning here? You right. know, and I know that's a horrible attitude to have, and it's not correct. But it's just like I can't. There's. Uh, I think the only fiction book I've ever, I, or fiction writer I can really read is Kyan Potok. 
um, who I got hooked on in college. And even then I don't read them that, that often, but, um, yeah, it's gotta be, it's gotta be nonfiction. Uh, just a couple more, um, favorite restaurant in town for when you and Lori want to go out and have a nice meal, just the two of you, where do you go? Well, remember really good. We do eat out a lot. So this is kind of a painful time for us right now, but, uh, a nice night out. I mean, if we were like wanting to be fancy and like pretend to be fancy people, like before we, we have tickets to the lyrics. So before a show or something, oh, we've been going to the black walnut. Um, over in Deep Deuce yeah. is pretty good. Um, I mean, my favorite restaurant in town is Cafe Cacao. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. We'll go to the press a lot in the plaza recently. That's kind of been a favorite. Um, Tamashi Ramen in Midtown is a place we like to go. I, but the only, like, fancy place we go, and then we all, I think we always just feel like we're just we're playing like we're going out to eat and being fancy, you know? <laughs> I, I think Black Walnut has been the one we've gone to the gone to the most. I don't know if you're – it's a yeah. kind of a modern American restaurant. In yeah, cool. Couple where, more. where is one spot in Oklahoma City where everyone should at least stop by once in their life? And that's a great question. Um, I, well, the easy answer is the memorial. Mm, yeah. I think before all this mess was happening, I was kind of working on some stories related to the 25th anniversary. And it's shocking to me how few people even know it exists or yeah. have gone there before. And so I think that's kind of a must stop and when I worked downtown at the Oklahoma and sometimes I would like take the bus in and from the bus stop, bus station to the Oklahoma and the straightest line was to walk through the memorial. But I also did it because I just, I just thought it was kind of, I liked that it. It's so inviting. You can walk through, it's almost park-like. I mean, yeah. a lot of reverence, but uh, so that would be a place that I would definitely recommend a lot. And other place, I just think getting out of the you know, I live in North Oklahoma City, so I'm as guilty of this, but just, you know, getting out into some of other kind of diverse neighborhoods, whether it's on the south or the east, or some great kind of Guatemalan communities on the west side, some good mm-hmm. restaurants, really good one that's yeah. in a grocery store over there. I mean, I think just this is a more diverse city than we give it credit for, and I think that's kind of a shame that we don't take advantage of that more often. Um, so just kind of exploring, I, I mean, this is the case in a lot of cities, but I, I meet people who've lived there the whole life, and they probably have never hardly gone south of the river or east of tooth of Broadway extension. And, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a great big city out there. It's a lot to, a lot to explore. Yeah. If there was a boat that <laughs> you could choose a name for, it was your boat. You had a, you have a little small yacht, let's say, what would you name your boat? I um, heard that you did ask your dad this question yeah, and yeah. the first, and I knew I wasn't going to get the same question, yeah. but my first thought was there would be uh, the, the Mahomes, of course. Oh, that's <laughs> a no brainer for me. Mahomes. Oh, the SS Mahomes. I like that's right. that. Uh, I'll, I'll end on this. Uh, what is your most irrational fear? Irrational fear. Yeah. Um, that I am, Going, we're going to end on a really morbid take. If you yeah, want yeah, me to yeah, answer yeah, honestly, that I'm going to die any moment. I'm really. I don't. Is there probably is there a term for that when you're constantly? Fe- I'm not afraid of death. I think about it so much now that I'm not afraid of it. Like I just assume it's going to happen at some point. Oh, and what, what is it when it moves past a fear? Oh, I don't know. Necrophobia is that fear yeah. of the dead? I not of the. No, I mean, that's like a, of a dead person. So it's not like oh. fear. I mean, so it's a fear, I guess, because I think it's about just it a like lot. Your life is just going to end. But I. Uh, um, I don't know. Like some, like sometimes Lori will say something about like when we're in our sixties, like, Oh, I won't live that long. <laughs> of course, which is a horrible thing to say to your, to say to your wife. And, and I will say, but I'm, I'm okay with that because if one of us has to go early, I, I hope it's me. And Lori says, yeah, I hope it's you too. <laughs> um, That's like the opposite of my wife. She's like, no, nah, no, nah, I want to go first. I don't want to deal with but, that. But you know, she makes more money. She's a better parent. It makes all the sense in the world to, for fair. me to go first. Um, yeah, I think that. And I think um, I said this on one of our podcasts recently. Four times a day, I think I have the coronavirus, um, <laughs> and I'm taking my temperature all the time. And and I'm not really like I'm not like a germaphobe at all. But I just I you know I don't want to like spread it to my family. And yeah. and I I do go out of the house more than recommended because of the job. And I'm trying to cut back on that. I mean, I don't go out a lot, but I mean, of course, go to a grocery store or something. But whether it's a press conference or, you know, I went Monday to a pediatrician's office for a story or to a school the other day. And so I'm very careful about that, but I, but I'm, you know, I'm, I also, I, I would hate to see something happen, you know, to even to my own family. And so I'm, I'm very cautious about that. So if I, if I thought I actually had symptoms, like if I took my temperature and I was had a fever, like I would 
like just go upstairs. I'm not coming back down, you know? Yeah. So I, that, I'm worried about that uh, as a lot of people are right now, yeah. but probably just, like I said, just, <laughs> just, I'm, just conv- <laughs> I'm just convinced it's going to happen. I don't know what it is. I just, uh, I'm just, um, I guess it's, I don't know that Jason Smith is convinced it's going to happen, but he has a, a much more, yeah. um, open relationship with death that, oh my um, friends, open relationship yeah. with death is really, <laughs> that, really I, that I kind yeah. of envy because I feel like if I'm going to be thinking about it all the time I might as well have a um, well he'll help a, you make your funeral slide better, spe- you <laughs> better spirit about it I haven't done any of that you think I would do the planning for it if I was just convinced it was going to happen but I'm always like what's the point I'll be dead what's the <laughs> <laughs> well on that note yeah. yeah well i'm gonna end you on just like a lighter one just because i sure. feel like we need to add, like what is the color of your toothbrush is a pretty standard one for me it's a copper brown quip toothbrush copper oh quip. Oh, quip. do you like quip i love it okay. it's sort of the apple of toothbrushes it does look very sleek it started multiple arguments between my, my, my wife she's not a fan of the quip or she's not a fan that i think it's like awesome. hands down the best toothbrush and and does she have very strong uh, opinions about toothbrushes. Um, she's using a bamboo toothbrush. <laughs> no, she brush, I mean, <laughs> okay. she's she's better at caring for her teeth than I am, I think. But uh, I just I'm convinced that this is the best way. There's two things. My toothbrush, I think, is the, the Quip toothbrush in your set. You brush in the morning and at night. You're set with this toothbrush. Um, and if you get ten thousand steps a day, mm. and, and uh, I'm convinced that if you do those things, that's all you need really yeah. in life to get through. To which my wife is not convinced, but. Oh. Uh, well, I smell Pulitzer. <laughs> That's it. Well, Ben Felder, thanks so much for stopping in. We really appreciate you uh, chatting with us. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, guys. Yeah, uh, thanks, John. Always a pleasure. All right, we'll see you next time. Okay. Bye.